And so let us hear the word of our God from 2 Samuel 5, beginning in verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also, in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Well, in many ways, 2 Samuel reaches a climax here in this section. Now, surely we're going to see important things in chapter 6 with the ark. We'll see even more important things in many ways in chapter 7 with the covenant with David um, and the Lord. But uh, in many ways, this is the pinnacle of the book. And that is the anointing of David as king in Hebron, yes, but over all of Israel. In fact, we've been waiting for this moment for many, many years. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 13, which is roughly the second year of Saul's rule, we've been waiting for this moment. In fact, we could go back to Ruth chapter 4. We've been waiting for this moment since then. Or we could go back to Genesis 49. Or we could go back even to Genesis 3. Let's start there. Let's turn to Genesis 3 and recall that uh, after Adam and Eve sinned, uh, God started pronouncing his judgments. And he starts, of course, with the serpent. And in verse 14, he Uh, begins, you might say, with the outward form of Satan in this way, cursing the serpent onto the dust. And then in verse 15, he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And God here in this passage promises that a particular seed of the woman would come and crush Satan's heel and restore us to God. And so from this point on, every son that was born of the woman, right? they looked, is this the one? And so we keep looking. We know, of course, it's not Cain or Abel. <clears throat> we know it's not Seth, but we keep looking. And we come then to Genesis chapter 12. And <clears throat> we see then God raises up a man named Abram or Abraham, and gives him promises too, and says um, about one of his seed. And note especially in verse 3 of Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so God takes, you might say, this very broad idea of this descendant of the woman and brings it down to one man, Abram. And then says another very broad thing. One of your descendants is going to come and bring blessings to the nations. And so God narrows our view. 
And of course, we see it's not Ishmael and it's not even Isaac. It's certainly not Esau and, and not even Jacob. But if we come to Genesis 49, we see then these final words of Jacob as he's about to die. He makes these words for his sons. And in Genesis 49, especially verse 8, it says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Remember, Judah means praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall <clears throat> bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who shall rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Verses 11 and 12 expands on the prosperity under this ruler. But we are told here by Jacob that uh, his son Judah would produce an heir who would rule over all things, ultimately. And so again, we have the seed of the woman, very broad, brought down to a man. And then Abraham's going to have this very broad promise. One of his children would be the seed that would bless everyone. And now we have it brought down to this man, Judah. And we are told then one of his sons would be the ruler. And yet, if you look at the end of this in Genesis 49, verse 27, the words to Benjamin... Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. And so when God chooses Saul, a descendant of Benjamin, we're like, what? I, I thought there was supposed to be a connection with Judah and, and Benjamin? I mean, now, granted, God's punishment on Israel for asking for a king was giving them Saul, <laughs> a son of Benjamin. And he certainly was a ravenous wolf in many ways. But back to the point here then. God's promise came through Judah. And after the Exodus, certainly we see Judah regularly taking the lead. He was prominent in the camp. Uh, Caleb, of course, was a son of Judah. Uh, Judah led the way in the conquest and the settling of the land. And then during the years of the judges, it was Judah whom God raised up. Uh, to uh, lead the way in a number of ways. And then specifically, it is a descendant of Judah that becomes our focal point. We see this rather obscure family of Elimelech. And this family had a tendency to include unclean Gentiles in it. And of course, Elimelech, and we see his two sons marrying Moabite women, but even before that, we see a man named Salmon who had married a former harlot named Rahab. And then they had a son whose name was Boaz. And he marries then this Moabite whose name is Ruth. And so as you may recall, Boaz, when, we, when I preached through the book of Ruth, Boaz may have been a married man who added this widow and provided an heir. Similar to um, uh, others in Israel who had multiple wives like Abraham and Jacob we just mentioned and certainly David and Solomon. Uh, he may have been an older bachelor who finally found a wife 
The text does not make it clear, so let's be careful in our sentiments. Uh, But if you do turn to Ruth chapter 4, we do have the book end in this way. So Genesis 49 is pushing us toward Judah, and we keep seeing these aspects of Judah through, uh, uh, especially Joshua and following. We see Ruth then saying these things in verse 17 of chapter 4. Also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then somebody likely added a little later these words. This is the genealogy of Peretz. Now remember, Peretz is the son of Judah. Peretz begot Hetzron. Hetzron begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. And so this obviously is uh, preparing the way. Um, Now, as I mentioned a little bit ago, when Israel asked for a king, God gave them not a son of Judah, but a son of Benjamin, not what you would expect. But when Saul sinned in 1 Samuel chapter 13, and again in chapter 15, and God said, I am going to raise up someone else, not in your line, but a man after my heart. It's no surprise that God then chooses a non-Benjamite, but in fact, a son of Judah. The hints along the way seem to be coming a little clearer. But let me pause and just say this. It may not be that Israel really understood the connections with Judah until we get to 2 Samuel 7 even. Because in chapter 7, that is when God promised to David that one of his would be the ruler, the Messiah. And uh, prior to that, you know, how much did they see? How much did they understand? We have 3,000 years since David of, of hindsight, and it's, it's quite clear now that Christ has come. When they're in the middle of it, it is harder to see There were enough words there. They should have seen it. And so again, you have this seed of the woman, this seed of Abraham, this descendant of Judah, bringing us down here to David. But as we know already, David's not the Messiah. All these passages that I've been reading here tonight are pointing to David to some degree, but they're pointing ultimately to the greater David to the son of David, and that is to Christ. Well, beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the authors have had us focus specifically uh, on David. And so if we look at that just for a moment in verse 1, uh, 1 Samuel 16, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And so, again, with our connections with Ruth, that connection is clear. And then down in verse 13, And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And so, we do see that. Right, we see the contrast with Saul, of course, but then in chapter 17, we see David and his success 
uh, regarding Goliath. We see the jealousy of Saul. We see the marriage to Michael, the friendship with Jonathan, right, the children of Saul. We see David fleeing from Saul, God protecting David. We see God sending David a prophet and a priest. And again, the king's son is on David's side. We've seen David's faith. We've seen his failures. We've seen him trust God, seeking God's guidance, not taking matters into his own hands. And yet he almost kills Nabal and he flees to the Philistines and lies there to them. Still, God is with David. The Philistines kill Saul and Jonathan, not David. The Amalekite says he kills Saul, but not David. Though Ishbosheth does become king, God gives David success and he establishes him as king in Hebron over part of Israel. And he has many wives and children there. And then, of course, we've seen Joab killing Abner, but uh, David didn't do any of these things. Ba'ana and Rechab kill Ishbosheth, and David's not part of it. We see again his innocence through all of that. David is not perfect, and yet God had chosen him, the son of Judah, back to Genesis 49, okay? the son of Abraham, back to Genesis 12, even the the son, the seed of the woman in that more limited sense, back to Genesis 3. David is in the promised line. He's not the culmination of it, but he's in it, a key part in it. Okay. And so this man, like, uh, like God, after God's own heart, he does not seize power. He does not seek a kingdom based on his own ingenuity but based on God's leading and God's law. And so, really, everything has been building to this point. To David, yes, in 1 Samuel 16 in many ways, but now especially to this moment in David's life. Certainly, there is more to come, and it ultimately to Christ, but things have been building here. Let's put it this way. It is now 1003 B.C., when David is anointed here in chapter 5. That means it was about 3,000 years since God promised a seed to the woman who would come and then sit on the throne. It's been about 1,013 years since God promised a seed would come through Abraham to bring blessing to the nations. It's been about 856 years since Jacob blessed his son Judah and more immediately, about 22 and a half years since God told Samuel to anoint David as the next king. And so again, in many ways, everything has been building to this moment. There is a greater moment, but nonetheless, it's been building here. And so <clears throat> as this time of the year, when we're thinking about Advent, the passages I've read and the things I've said Hey, we, we think of Christ, we think of the Messiah, and, and of course we should. But don't forget David along the way. It was pointing to him initially, in certain ways, not ultimately, of course. Okay. Now it's going to be another thousand years until the Messiah is born. Uh, but this type of Christ here in David is our focal point now. And so this moment in history is very, very significant. So with that 
to kind of set the stage. Let's look then uh, at these verses. Verse 1, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. All right, in the middle of what they're saying, but uh, let's, let's look at this here briefly. Um, it says that all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Now, uh, this would not mean every last single individual. Um, at the very minimum, this would have to be the representative leaders of the people. And so, as we saw in chapter 3, uh, most likely the 20 men that came with Ahab were elders of the 10 tribes, right? Of course, Judah and Simeon would not be included. Um, and so you figure there's at least 20 here, um, but were there 10 or 20 or even 100 elders per tribe this time? Let's turn a moment to First Chronicles <coughs> chapter 11. <coughs> First Chronicles 11. First, I'd like to, <coughs> us to look at the parallel passage and how it's nearly verbatim. In 1 Chronicles 11, verse 1, it says, Then all Israel came together to David at Hebron, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, even when Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord your God said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over my people Israel. Therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. As you see, it's, it's virtually identical. Uh, not surprising that this event would be recorded twice, nearly word for word. But if you turn to chapter 12, we are given a lot more detail in chapter 12, beginning in verse 23, <clears throat> let me read this part. First uh, Chronicles 12, 23. Now these were the numbers of the divisions that were equipped for war and came to David at Hebron to turn over the kingdom of Saul to him, according to the word of the Lord. Of the sons of Judah, bearing shield and spear, 6,800 armed for war. Of the sons of Simeon, mighty men of valor, fit for war, 7,100. Now, of course, David's already been ruling over these two, but it continues now. Of the sons of Levi, 4,600. Jehoiada, the leader of the Aaronites, and with him 3,700. Zadok, a young man, a valiant war, and from his father's house, 22 captains. So note the sons of Levi, the priesthood, and such now. Of the sons of Benjamin, relatives of Saul, 3,000. Until then, the greatest part of them had remained loyal to the house of Saul. Of the sons of Ephraim, 20,800, mighty men of valor, famous men throughout their father's house. Of the half-tribe of Manasseh, 18,000, who are designated by name to come and make David king. Of the sons of Issachar, who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, their chiefs were 200, and all their brethren were at their command. Always need wise leaders to tell you which uh, is the best decision. Of Zebulun, there were 50,000 who went out to battle, expert in war, with all weapons of war, stout-hearted men who could keep ranks. Of Naphtali, 1,000 captains, and with them 37,000 with shield and spear. Of the Danites, <coughs> who could keep battle formation, 28,600. 
of Asher, those who could go out to war, able to keep battle formation, 40,000. Of the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh from the other side of the Jordan, 120,000 armed for battle with every kind of weapon of war. All these men of war who could keep ranks came to Hebron with a loyal heart to make David king over all Israel. And all the rest of Israel were of one mind to make David king. And they were there with David three days, eating and drinking, for their brethren had prepared for them. Moreover, those who were near to them from as far away as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali were bringing food on donkeys and camels, on mules and oxen, provisions of flour and cakes of figs and cakes of raisins, wine and oil and oxen and sheep abundantly, for there was joy in Israel. Now, if we were only to read 1 Chronicles 11, 1 to 3, or our passage here tonight, um, we might think this was a rather small event. (laughs) But if you add up these numbers, you get 340,822. Now, it doesn't appear like the number of the elders is included in this number. Maybe there were others. You would suspect there are others too. Maybe the numbers pushed 350,000 or something like that. But imagine the scene. All these people coming. All this food coming. You know, piled up on all these animals that we just read about. They, they, They descend on Hebron. And though Hebron was a key city, still, this was a big deal. And so, you know, maybe it'd be more like 350,000 people coming to Grove City or something like that compared to Harrisville. Um, but, right, just imagine right in the middle a, you know, whatever, 50 by 50 platform built for the coronation of David. And all the elders sitting on there and maybe these tribal chiefs of the military and uh, everybody surrounding it. You know, maybe they're all on the hillsides looking down on it, or possibly they're at the top and everybody's surrounding it looking up. Whatever the situation, okay, can you imagine the, the, the excitement here? Maybe there was a fireworks display one night or something, and the band played on another night or whatever. Okay, it's a big deal. Again, everything has been building to this, really, for thousands of years. Certainly, you could say, for 22 and a half. And so every tribe now comes and consents to David as king. As you come back to 2 Samuel, if you haven't yet, uh, remember the words in chapter 3, verse 17. This is when Abner comes to David. It says, Now Abner communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, In time past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Also, Abner spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. And Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner and the twenty men with him came to David at Hebron. And David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my Lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. Now, of course, you remember what Joab does in his selfishness and his murderous ways. He seeks to really just think of himself 
And you wonder, is this going to thwart God's plans? Well, of course, no, it doesn't. It doesn't thwart Abner's efforts either. <clears throat> and so now we are here. You know, however many weeks later or whatever, they come. And everybody uh, is, is excited. All right, now, <clears throat> this, again, is laying some background to uh, the event itself. And so now, here are their words. And they, they come to David, and they say three things, three reasons why they want David as their king. And the first one is here in verse 1, which says, um, We are your bone and your flesh. In other words, we're related. Today we might say flesh and blood, same idea. Um, even though David's not a Benjamite, he is the son of Judah, which again is what we would expect. Um, um, you remember also in Deuteronomy 17, I do want to read it here in a little bit, but uh, for now let me just reference it. I uh, remember it said there that it had to be an Israelite who would be king over the people of Israel. And so they are making mention of that. David is not a foreigner. He is a fellow Israelite. You wonder, too, how much of David's mourning uh, back in chapter 1, in chapter 3, and even in chapter 4, how much of that contributed to the turnout, you might say. But they come and say, hey, you're one of us. And maybe they're thinking, and we see that by how you buried Abner and even Ishbosheth's head. We see that. You're one of us. So then the second reason they give is in verse 2. And it says, Also in time past when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And so let's refresh our memory here in this way. Let's turn back to chapter 18 of 1 Samuel. And you remember uh, these words. This is after David kills Goliath. <clears throat> and in 1 Samuel 18 verse 5, it says, so David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely, and Saul sent him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Okay, now remember, there, um, uh, we come back to, if you will, the immediate event where they're coming back after killing Goliath, and the ladies are singing and dancing, and Saul has killed his thousands, and David is ten thousand. Saul's all upset and so forth, and so he he uh, tries to kill David. But if you jump down to verse 13, Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them, including Michael, right? And she wants to marry him and so forth. If you look down at verse 30, it says the princes, the Philistines went out to war. And so it was whenever they went out that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul. So that his name became highly esteemed. So in the next chapter, as Saul persecutes David, remember, he's got to ramp up the, the propaganda machine to speak against David. And Saul's got a big task here to speak against David and to convince people that David is the bad guy. And it worked, at least to some degree. But now, you might say everything is coming back to the way it was. The way they viewed David initially is now coming back here as they bring him and uh, uh, anoint him as king. 
Now, let's also turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And I want to return here in, uh, in a moment. But let me call our attention, first of all, to verses 19 and 20. <clears throat> in 1 Samuel 8, verse 19, after Saul's warnings, it says, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations. And then note this part. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And so not only are the people here in Hebron saying, David, remember what you did, but right, this is what we want for the king. We want the king to fight our battles. You remember, as, as I talked about, God had established the land for individual responsibility with local rule and at the mo for the most part, things were done within the tribes. Okay, now, yes, you had the Levites. There's a little bit of federalism. Hey, but for the most part, everything was done locally. But the people no longer wanted personal accountability and responsibility. They wanted a king to fight against their enemies. Because remember, the enemies were caused judgment for them not being holy. They didn't want holiness. They just wanted to do what they pleased and a king to drive off the enemies, rather than holiness driving off their enemies. And so that mentality is still continuing here with David. It's not just with Saul. So, as we come back then to 2 Samuel 5, we come then to the third reason, also in verse 2. <clears throat> the rest of the verse says, And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. And they give a theological reason now. And Yahweh said you would be king. Now, we could go back to Genesis 49 again. Okay? But more immediately, what we saw there in 1 Samuel chapter 16. It took 22 and a half years to get to this point. But nevertheless, here it is. And so if you look also in chapter 3 here of 2 Samuel, remember verses 9 and 10. Uh, may God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not do for David, as the Lord had sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Uh, that's in the context of Abner speaking to Ishbosheth. But again, there's this reference to God's promises to David. We saw it. Saul refer to them. Jonathan refers to them. Abner here. Okay? We've seen many places like this. So note the three things then, kinship, military success, and divinely chosen by God. These three reasons are why they want David as king. <clears throat> they want David to shepherd them, to lead them, to rule over them. These are common terms for a king we see in the scripture. They're also common terms you see outside of Israel at the time, and so uh, no surprise that this language is used. It's not unique to David or anything like that. All right, now let's look at verse 3. <clears throat> Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. All right, again, you figure there's at least two per tribe doing this. And so 24 in this case, if you add Levi, okay, maybe 26. Uh, maybe there are 10 or 12 
per tribe. Whatever it was, we have this anointing, this covenant that is made. Now, it's been a little while since I've reviewed with you the various aspects of the covenant, the covenant ceremony. And so let's do that here briefly. You may remember some of these as I go through that. (laughs) I won't uh, test you too hard here. But first of all, you may remember the preamble was the first part of the covenant. The preamble refers to who is in the covenant. And so in this case, of course, it's David and Israel. Secondly, you have the historical prologue. And so this would be a review of the history of the relationship of the people in the covenant. And so um, you figure this at least took us back to 1 Samuel 16, maybe chapter 17 with Goliath. Maybe they went back to 1 Samuel 8. Uh, If they're starting to connect everything with Judah, maybe they're going back to Ruth or even to Genesis 49. We don't know exactly what was said. It doesn't tell us here. But surely, in this covenant ceremony, they would have said words um, that reviewed the history of relationship with David and Israel. Thirdly, the stipulations or the requirements of the covenant. David had obligations to lead Israel and to fight their enemies. Israel had responsibilities and obligations to follow David and serve him. So let's expand on this here just a moment. Let's turn to Deuteronomy 17 now. And uh, you recall that uh, Moses said, when you eventually want to be like the nations and not do what God says and uh, have a king, uh, here's what he's supposed to do. So Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, obviously that's true of David, one from among your brethren, you shall set his king over you, right? Remember that was the first thing they said, the flesh and bone. Um, You may not set a foreigner over us who is not your brother, but he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. David did well keeping that one. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, uh uh-oh, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. He seemed to do pretty well with the last one there. Also, it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book, and from the one before the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children, in the midst of Israel. Well, <clears throat> David did this more or less. Certainly he was not perfect. But he did seek to keep the law and to lead the people in covenant obedience to the Lord. Did you see the other day someone was sworn into office putting his hand not on a Bible but a stack of pornography? It's just crazy. This is in our country, by the way. Anyway, David here does seek to do rightly, however imperfectly. David is obligated to lead Israel 
and obligated ultimately to God here in this way. <coughs> but it does go the other way around. And so if you turn to 1 Samuel 8 again, <coughs> you remember these words of Samuel to Israel when they initially anointed Saul. In 1 Samuel 8, <coughs> they asked for the king. And in verse 10, Samuel warns them and says this. 1 Samuel 8, verse 10. 1 Samuel 8, verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest. And some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, <clears throat> your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. And so they suffered with Saul for 40 years. But you see all the times the word take is used here. This is what kings do. They take. Yahweh gives is the good king. But human kings, they take. Saul took. David took. Solomon took even more. But nevertheless, you see the point. These are the obligations of the people to David. David is going to require things of them, and they must obey him. Now, too bad uh, we're not at 10% taxes for the government, but anyway, I digress again. Um, <clears throat> so the next one now are the sanctions. So you have the preamble, historical prologue, stipulations, then the sanctions. Remember, that refers to blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. We saw that... Uh, basically alluded to in Deuteronomy 17, as well as here in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8. Uh, the next one would be the witnesses to the covenant. <clears throat> well, you had over 340,000 of those. And then you'd have the sign for the covenant. And this probably should be understood as the anointing and the coronation of David. Uh, the anointing, of course, uh, the pouring of oil on the head of the king to set him apart um, to show that he has been uh, basically covered by the Spirit. The Spirit has come upon him to enable him to rule is the idea. And then the crowning. Um, did David use the crown that the Amalekite brought? Is this the crown that Saul wore? Uh, was he wearing it in Hebron? Is he wearing it again? Did they give him a new crown? We're not told any of these details, but surely these things would have happened. And then remember also there would be a covenant meal. And in 2 Samuel 3, remember we were told that um, David ate a meal, had a feast with Abner and the elders. And so surely they would have had a covenant meal specifically here. Remember they ate and feasted for three days. And so there would have been a particular set apart time for the covenant meal too. 
And again, uh, all this information we're talking about, uh, doesn't, it's not spelled out. Not here, but it is elsewhere. And so lastly then in this way, remember Genesis 15 with God's covenant with Abraham. God told Abraham to take the animals and to cut them in half and lay them apart. And they were going to pass between the pieces. And likely this happened too. Again, maybe it's up on this, this uh, raised platform for everyone to see. And they cut the animals and David and all the elders pass in between. And they say, David says, I promise to keep my obligations. And the people would say, I promise to keep all my obligations. And if it doesn't happen, you can kill me like we just killed the animals. This likely was part of this three-day celebration and so on. Okay. So David now has been anointed for th on three occasions. First of all, by Samuel. Secondly, in 2 Samuel 2, verse 4, by uh, the people of Judah and Simeon, and now here. David is set apart to rule. He is led by the Spirit. Now, do you see what's going on here? Just something for us to observe briefly. God had set apart David, had promised this idea, as we've seen, even for many, many generations, but there still is the consent of the governed. The people had to agree to this. It isn't just the divine right of kings. The people needed to consent. And they did. For a time. Because eventually the covenant was broken. David broke the covenant with his sin with Bathsheba and with the census. And there were problems. There were consequences for David and his family and for the rest of the nation. Uh, Solomon broke the covenant. His taking was rather excessive, and the people were grumbling and complaining, and rightly so in this case. <laughs> um, and then when Rehoboam started ruling, they said, hey, lighten up here. And, they, and Rehoboam said, nope, and so the covenant was, was broken. And so you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom from that point on. Another point for us to observe is this, and it's something we've seen all along here. God's promises are fulfilled. Since Genesis 3, since Genesis 49, 1 Samuel 16, okay, Saul couldn't thwart this, even though he refused to obey. Abner couldn't thwart it initially. Philistines, Joab, the Amalekite, Rahab, and Baanah, not even David can get in the way of God's plans and purposes. All of these sins were overcome by God. Okay. And this was true to establish David as king. How much more is this true to establish the son of David, Jesus, as true king? Yes, in his first coming, but especially in his second coming. So, <clears throat> let me briefly now read verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, David was 30 years old when he began to reign. Right, that would have been in Hebron. And he reigned 40 years. This is not a round number. In Hebron, verse 5, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. Okay. It's often 
uh, the case that you hear people say that 40 is just some symbolic number, some round number, and it's not meant to be taken literally. But yeah, it is here, certainly. Okay. And so 40 and a half years of rule. This is 1010 to 970 B.C. And this particular event, again, is 1003 B.C. And let me end with this um, pet peeve, you might say. <clears throat> I still like using the term B.C., before Christ. Probably in the last 25 years or something like that, there's been a shift to use the term B.C.E., before the Christian era, but time and history did not change because of the church. Okay? Time and history did not change because of Christians, but because of Christ. And so we celebrate the birth of Christ that changes history. So I still like using the term BC. But anyway. So our overall point here is wow, right? <laughs> Look at what God is doing. Something that's been in the works for centuries and something that anticipates the coming of David's son. And so here are a few words in this way tonight. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father and God, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for how it all ties together. We're thankful, Lord, for your promises. We're thankful, Lord, for the fulfillment of your promises. We're thankful, Lord, that you fulfill these promises in men, fallible men, sinful men. So it'll point us to the greater king, to you, to Christ, to a greater fulfillment, a greater um, realization of the promises. And that, of course, is in the coming of Christ and in his coming again. And so, Lord, we... We do rejoice that David was anointed as king. We rejoice with Israel. Um, we rejoice in the fact that you overcame so many things that people tried to do to thwart your plans and purposes. And we know that this is something you do even today uh, among your people. But we thank you most of all that you have done so uh, in sending forth your son, Jesus. And as we celebrate his birth here at this time of the year, and we look forward to his coming again. We are so thankful, Lord, that you are the same God as we have uh, been talking about here in First uh, and Second Samuel and, and even before. And so, Lord, we uh, pray that you would give us the same kind of faith uh, that uh, David had and that you would help us then to, uh, to serve you, to serve Christ, the greater king, with everything that we have. And so we pray all of this then in Jesus' name. Amen.